0: Well good morning everyone. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. I was of course supposed to be up here last week but uh, Covid put paid to that and uh, thank you to my dad for stepping in last minute and uh, stepping in for me but you know thank God it was mild it was over quickly and I'm back I'm back with you this morning. So the title of my sermon today is The Reality of Jesus and the reason I chose that title is because Jesus we know isn't just an inspirational figure he's not just a role model for us. When we accept Jesus for who he is, it means we look at reality in a different way completely. We see our world differently, we see other people differently, and we live every single moment of every day differently, because the truth of Jesus Christ encompasses our whole lives, not just Sunday mornings. And I want to explore that reality today by first looking at John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 through to 31. That's John 20. 24 to 31. So just while you make your way there, a bit of context for the passage. It takes place shortly after Jesus' resurrection. It's after he appears to all the disciples except one of them, and that's Thomas. So, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So, From this text, I've got four points to share with you, and they're all to do with this reality of Jesus. The first point is that the reality of Jesus changes everything. We have seen the Lord. That's the statement. That's the testimony that started the whole chain reaction that turned the whole world upside down. This startling claim of the resurrection is as controversial today as it was 2000 years ago. Now, why is that? Because when we say that Christ is risen, we confirm that he was telling the truth and that he was exactly who he claimed to be. So what's the big deal? Jesus said a lot of wonderful things. He told us of God's love for mankind. He spoke in amazing parables. He gave us timeless moral lessons. He showed us how to love one another. And his life is the example of human perfection that has inspired countless people, Christian or otherwise, throughout all of history. Now those truths most people will accept most people will stomach them they're quite palatable but jesus also said things like this in john chapter 14 verse 6 he said i am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except through me see jesus didn't just claim to know the truth he didn't just claim to have the truth he claimed to be the truth In this passage and many others, Jesus claims an exclusivity that offended people of the day and still offends people today. Because when we claim that truth can only be found in Jesus Christ, what we are implicitly, indirectly saying is that every other religion, every worldview, every philosophy is wrong. It's a flat out lie. Now, no one likes to be told that they're wrong, (laughs) especially when it comes to deeply held religious beliefs. You know, people have beliefs that have been passed down through generations of families, rituals and celebrations that mean a great deal to people personally. They have great sentimental value. But Jesus confronts all of them and says, if it's not about him, it doesn't matter. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is to tell someone that they're wrong. And that's especially true when it comes to where we spend eternity. Now, after the resurrection, as the disciples went out to preach the good news, when they went to tell everyone that Christ had risen, they had to confront the strongly held beliefs of their day whether it was the various Jewish groups, the Greek philosophers that Paul spoke to, or the Roman pagan practices, wherever they preached the gospel, they came up against all of these views. Now, these groups that I've just mentioned, they don't have a lot of relevance today. We're 2,000 years removed and 4,000 miles removed. But there is a popular worldview and it's becoming more popular with every single generation that passes. If you read the censuses, for example, that happen every 10 years, you can see the numbers going up and up. And that belief is naturalism. Simply put, naturalism is the idea that everything in reality has an entirely natural cause. And if you can't put it under a microscope, well, it doesn't exist. The universe, naturalism says, wasn't created, it just is. Life as we know it developed purely due to random chance. No God, no immortal soul, just nature. Now, one of the most tragic consequences of this belief, and there are many, is that there are millions of people alive today who believe that their life has no value and no purpose whatsoever. Worse than that, they really believe that their life is an accident. In fact, from the naturalistic viewpoint, Everything is an accident. The universe is a cosmic spillage, which, of course, if the universe is an accident, then so are we. Is it any wonder, then, that people are so depressed? Now, of course, there's multiple factors that go into this, but at a time when so many people believe that life isn't worth living and that they don't have any value, the supposed rational and scientific wisdom of the world tells them and reinforces, actually, you are worthless. That's what it tells them. Just an insignificant speck of dust on a little unimportant floating rock in the cold vastness of space. But it gets worse because under naturalism there is no morality. Ideas like right and wrong or good and evil we've just invented as helpful social constructs or expressions of our personal taste. Now, we don't have to look far into human history to see what happens when powerful people decide for themselves what's right and wrong. The consequences of this belief are far reaching and now are deeply entrenched in our society. But Jesus changes everything. When we proclaim that Jesus is the truth, when we say that we have seen the Lord, we proclaim the truth of the Bible. And what does the Bible say? What does the Bible give answers to when it comes to naturalism? It's clear. The word of God makes it clear that the world is not an accident. In the beginning, God created. Human life is not an accident either. God created us in his image. We're not just another animal. We have worth, we have value, and we are precious in the sight of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're knitted together in our mother's womb. And God placed us, each and every one of us here in this particular time, in this particular place, for a purpose. There is comfort to be found in God's word that the world cannot and will not provide. Excuse me. You see, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus means that no matter what you're going through, Whatever you're feeling this morning, whatever trial you are enduring, it doesn't change the facts. Christ is risen. That's full stop. End of. The reality of Jesus doesn't change depending on how you or I feel about it. You know, you can wish that the sky was purple, but it's not going to change. And I thank God for that because our emotions are so fickle, aren't they? Day to day they change. Sometimes it takes nothing to put us in a bad mood. You know, we change, our circumstances change, our feelings, our relationships, our health. It can all change in an instant. We all know that it only takes one phone call, one appointment, and everything goes upside down. But praise God, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the old hymn goes, there is no shadow of turning with thee. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour this morning, your life is built on a solid rock that can never be moved. As you watch the news and you see the chaos and the uncertainty unfold all around us, remember this verse. Psalm 62 verse 1. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Can you say that this morning, that he is your fortress? So the reality of Jesus changes everything, but it also confronts each one of us personally. Back in John chapter 20, Thomas is confronted with the reality of Jesus, and this is how he responds. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas is no stranger to Jesus. Thomas witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed time and time again. He was with Jesus when he talked about how he would die and rise again. In fact, at one point, we see a very different Thomas. See, the passage we're looking at today has earned him a a nickname or a title because we don't just call him Thomas, do we? We call him Doubting Thomas. However, if you turn to John 11 at the beginning of the chapter, you can see Jesus receiving news that his friend Lazarus has fallen ill. And in verse seven, he says to the disciples, we need to go back to Judea. Now the disciples respond, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back there. Just at the end of John chapter 10, Jesus is making radical claims about his deity and the Jews tried to kill him for it. Now here, Jesus is saying that they're gonna walk right back into danger. If you skip ahead to verse 16, one of the disciples makes a very bold statement. And it's Thomas. Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. See, Thomas here was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. Now, that's not the doubting Thomas that we we most often remember, is it? So what happened? How did we go from zealous Thomas to doubting Thomas? Well, we have to understand that Thomas, just like the rest of the disciples, had to go through the trauma of the crucifixion witnessing the crucifixion of Christ. From his perspective, he had to watch a dear friend, the promised Messiah, die one of the most painful deaths known to man. And although Jesus spoke time and time again of how he was going to die and rise again, it didn't take away from just how harrowing this experience was. There was no doubt in Thomas's mind, I'm sure, that Jesus was dead. The Roman cross wasn't just a torture device, it was designed to kill, and they had got it down to an art. They had got it down very effectively. Yet here in this room, Thomas's beliefs are confronted. We have seen the Lord, they said, because these men that Thomas had travelled with, he'd risked his life with these men. These are men that he could trust, and they were saying to him, what you believe about Jesus is wrong. In the same way, The disciples' claim to have seen the risen Lord Jesus, it confronts every single one of us today. It's not a statement that we can remain ambivalent about. We cannot sit on the fence. See, the claims of Scripture confront us in the same way that an oncoming train confronts someone on the tracks. The Bible says things that, if true, are so life-changing, so important, so radical, that it forces us to make a decision. In front of the train, you've got two options. It's left or right. In front of the Bible, you've got two options. You accept or reject. And here, Thomas rejects. In this picture of confrontation that applies to all of us, why is it then that so many people, even the majority of people, reject this reality of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus himself said that the way to life is narrow, and there are few that find it. So why is this the case? So let's look at John chapter 3. It's another passage, and I'm sure you all know it quite well. Beginning at verse 16, that's John chapter 3, verse 16. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now, this is the part I want to draw attention to. Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. If you've ever lifted up a plant pot or a slab after it's been raining, what are you going to find underneath? Yeah, well, wood lice, lots of wood lice, probably. Now, wood lice are naturally drawn to dark, damp spaces. They, they thrive, they're adapted perfectly to live in these environments. So what happens when you expose them to the sunlight, to the fresh air? They run. They run and they hide. Their natural instinct is to flee the light and go straight back into the nearest dark, damp space that they can find. And this, I think, is a picture of the natural response of man to God. Before we're saved, we love the darkness. We embrace our sins and we feel perfectly comfortable rejecting God. But when we're confronted with the light, when we're confronted with the resurrection of Christ, the perfect holiness and righteousness of God, our first instinct is to hide. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 reads, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now, it's an unsettling thought, isn't it, to think of our whole lives laid out in front of God. We know that when our lives are laid out in that way, it's not a pretty picture. We know that there are sins in there that we're ashamed of. There are mistakes that we made. There are people that we hurt. The Bible says that our sins have separated us from God. And when we consider the weight of our sin and the number of our sin, how great must that separation be? But the reality of Jesus changes all of that. We know that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That when we put our trust in Him as Saviour and when we turn from our sins, we find forgiveness for every single one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 reads In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. When Jesus shed His blood on the cross for us, He paid our sin debt in full. The word you'll find. In Greek, when Jesus says, it is finished, the word is tetelestai, and that's literally what it means, paid in full. See, when we become a Christian, our sins are washed away. And Christ's righteousness, his life of perfect obedience and sinlessness is imputed to us. So that when now God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our failure. He doesn't see our imperfection. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, of his son. So when we know this, when we remember this, we can stand in the light with confidence. We don't need to flee back into the darkness because we don't love the darkness anymore. That's not our home. That's not where we're meant to be. We love the light and we become something that is altogether new. See, the power of God changes us from the inside out. And this leads us to point number three, that the reality of Jesus transforms lives. Back in John chapter 20, verse 27, we read, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. In a moment, everything changed for Thomas. Thomas had drawn his line in the sand. He'd set his conditions. He said, I'm not believing unless. And despite his stubbornness, despite the fact that he didn't trust the faithful witness of his friends, Jesus comes to him. And not only does he come to Thomas, he gives him exactly what he asked for. He shows him the wounds. And how does Thomas respond? my Lord and my God. Thomas's view of reality changes in a moment, and he confesses that not only is Jesus alive, but he is Lord and he is God. In that moment, Thomas's eyes are fully open. He understands who Jesus is completely. Now, beyond this passage and what we read earlier in John 11, we don't hear a lot about Thomas in the Bible. He's there at the beginning of the book of Acts in the upper room, with the other disciples but beyond that that's it we don't have anything there is an early church tradition of course which we must take with a grain of salt that Thomas traveled as a missionary to India and was martyred there for his faith Thomas was a transformed man you see the Christian faith doesn't just present us with a set of rules to follow it doesn't present us with a system that makes our lives better It's not a system that when we stick to the regulations, it earns us favour with God to give us a chance at making it to heaven. It's not just an intellectual idea that we either agree or disagree with. And this is something that so much of the world gets wrong about Jesus Christ. It's a misconception held by so many people. The world puts Christianity alongside false religions in what we might call a multi-pack bag of faiths. You've seen them the bags of crisps with all the different flavours in. To the secular world, Christianity is nothing more than another flavour, right? We like cheese and onion in this building. The people at the mosque like salt and vinegar. And at the Sikh temple, they like prawn cocktails. The flavour that we like is just our personal preference. And ultimately, it's completely inconsequential. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, they're all just crisps. But for those of us who know Jesus as Saviour... We know from experience the transforming power of the gospel. Second Corinthians five seventeen says this: Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone; the new has come. Now, this isn't just symbolic language, because to be in Christ is to be made new, to be given a new heart, with new desires, with new affections. You know, we've got a room full of people this morning, myself included, who can tell you what we were like before Christ. We can tell you what we were like before Christ came into our lives and changed our hearts. And this is so important for us to remember because it separates faith in Christ from every false religion of the world. Now, false religion has one common denominator, and that's works righteousness. We've heard about it as we've been going through Galatians. And it's the idea that we can have a set of rules and regulations presented to us. And if we're good at sticking to the rules, we might just make it. Now, many people sincerely believe that this is what the Bible teaches as well. But it couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible makes it clear that we don't change ourselves in order to earn God's love. Rather, God changes us because he loves us already. Romans 5, 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's not you who makes the first move towards God. He has made the first step towards you, and he's done that in the cross. Now, not only does God love us, redeem us, save us and change us. He keeps us. In Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul writes this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, when God saves us, he doesn't put us at the bottom of a big staircase with heaven at the top and say, go on, have a go at getting up there. He comes down to the bottom with us in the person of Christ Jesus. He takes our hand and he walks up with us every step of the way and he doesn't let go. He makes sure that we make it to the top. We have his promise. This is one of the most precious promises of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, this is a promise you need to hold on to, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, as Jesus appeared to Thomas, he appears to us and changes us in a moment. He opens our eyes to see him for who he truly is. And our lives are changed forever. Now, the Bible's full of vivid descriptions of this transformation. We go from darkness to light, from old to new, from bondage to freedom, from enemies of God to friends of God, from mourning to dancing, from asleep to awake, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and from death to life. If you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, Or perhaps you made a commitment some time ago and your life doesn't reflect that transformation that the Bible describes. All of these promises of God, they can be yours. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. That the reality of Jesus demands a response. Back in John chapter 20, verse 29 onwards we read. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here the author of the book, John, chimes in and he tells us precisely why he wrote it. He recorded these historical events so that we, the readers, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah who was prophesied hundreds of years ago before, and that by believing we might have life in his name. That is to say, eternal life. John, just like the other three gospel authors, lays out the evidence before us. We read of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his words, his teachings, his signs, his miracles. Now, what we have here in the four Gospels are not symbolic stories that make us feel good. They're not moral lessons to help us have a better life. What we have here are written testimonies of who Jesus truly is and what he truly said. So what did Jesus say? If we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we need to be hanging on every single word that he said. The most pressing, the most urgent thing that Jesus talked about was eternity. Jesus told us that when our physical bodies die, it's not the end. Instead, we either go to be with the Lord in heaven forever or we go away to judgment in hell forever. Now, unfortunately, in the time since Jesus's ministry, heaven and hell have become a kind of cliche. You know, if someone's had a rough week, they might say, I've been through hell. You know, thanks to art and literature, The images that most people have in their minds of heaven and hell are caricatures, and they have no basis in biblical truth. When people think of hell, they think of little red demons with pitchforks running around, or when they think of heaven, it's people with wings playing harps on the clouds. You know, you won't find that in the Bible. Heaven and hell are very real places. They're not states of mind, and Jesus made this very clear. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled, Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Conversely, Jesus describes hell as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire never goes out. Now, if we trust the words of Jesus, this is what is at stake. Your eternal home. Now, it's becoming a trend in a lot of modern churches to brush these things under the rug. It's uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about eternal judgment. So matters of eternity get pushed to the side. We talk about the here and now, applying biblical wisdom to our lives, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. But if we as Christians believe what Jesus said about eternity, then we have a responsibility not to shy away from these truths. Now, I want to share with you a quote from a man named Penn Gillette. You might have heard of him. He's a famous illusionist and actually an outspoken atheist. Now, before you kick me off the pulpit, uh, he he uploaded a video to YouTube several years ago talking about proselytizing, about sharing your faith, about winning people to Christ. And what he said, I really think every Christian ought to hear. He said this, quote, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytise. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytise? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. End quote. Now, this is an atheist talking, someone on the outside who can see the plain and simple and very serious truths about eternity. Now, what makes this matter all the more urgent is that none of us know when our time will come to pass over into eternity. There's a song that we sing here sometimes. And we sing about the day when our strength is failing, when the end draws near and our time has come. And that is a time that's going to come for every single one of us. It's the only thing guaranteed in life. It's death. For some of us, it might be many years in the future. For some of us, it might be much sooner. For some of us, it might come slowly. For some of us, it might happen quickly without warning. James chapter four, verse 14 says this. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The Bible is full of verses that speak about just how short and how fragile our lives are. And we would do well to remember that. Now, if you're hearing this sermon and you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, it means you still have time. It means that God is still calling you to repent and believe. The Bible tells us that now is the time of God's favour. Today, today is now is the day of salvation. And I want to remind you this morning that indecision is a decision. Now, if you're in the airport waiting for a plane and you're not sure whether you want to get on it, There will be a time when that decision is made for you if you wait long enough. There will come a time when it is too late to trust in Jesus. So if you haven't yet done that this morning, I plead with you, turn to the Saviour. Jesus says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. If you come to Christ, you have his promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you from now into eternity. For those of us who are in Christ, the reality of eternal life and eternal judgment should spur us on to share the gospel because there will come a day when it's too late for us to share, too late for us to witness. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, once said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. If there's someone in your life you haven't witnessed to, now is the time. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed for you or for them. So bringing things into a close. If you have life in his name, if Christ is your Lord and saviour, if you have come to know the reality of Jesus Christ, you have a blessed assurance. The writer to the Hebrews describes it like this in chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You see, we have a promise of a peace that surpasses all understanding, a comfort that the world cannot provide to us. We know that when our physical bodies pass away, there is a home in heaven waiting for us. We have the promise of forgiveness, that even though our sins are scarlet, God can wash us white as snow. Through the death of Christ on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. And through the resurrection of Christ, we have eternal hope of a future in the presence of God with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who made that journey there before us. We know that no matter what faces us in this life, if we have Christ, then we have everything. We can say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word that's full of so many wonderful promises, We thank thank you that you are our solid rock, that you are unchanging, that your promises are yes and amen, Lord. We thank you for the truth of the risen Christ that doesn't change depending on our mood, that we know that you are with us through every trial, every adversity, because you have promised that you will be there with us. Lord, we pray that you would empower us to share the gospel with those we love, empower us to preach your word with confidence. Lord, the words of Scripture, all your promises, write them to our hearts that we may remember them, Lord. We thank you for the promises that you've fulfilled in our lives and the ones that are yet to be fulfilled. Bless us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.